Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. So here's how we found Carl Mamer. If my memory serves me correctly, and David feels that I'm senile now, so therefore my memory doesn't work very well. What was my name again? Oh, anyway, I have something set up called Google Alerts. And every time someone writes something about the PowerCast, about our other show, The Tech Night Out Live, or about me personally, I get a Google Alert. So I got a Google Alert where... Carl Mamer writes something about podcasts, paranormal podcasts, and mentions the Paracast in rather favorable terms. And even though we're Calvinists and witch hunters, I was absolutely amazed, and so was David. So we decided we're going to have Carl on the show and find out why he likes us, whereas others don't. (laughs) And let's let's be specific. The, uh, The website is The Amateur Scientist. And Carl's uh, uh, thing that he does is called Podcasting Without Pity. So let's be technically accurate here, Gene. Okay, so there is no pity on this show either. Mm, well, maybe there is. Sometimes. A little pity. Well, we'll have to see because, you know, we're, we're, we're Woosters. But we'll get into that in a moment. Okay. <laughs> when you say Wooster, I think I'm from Massachusetts or something. Ooh. No, actually, no. See, the thing is, Carl's review, and it was actually a... Interestingly enough, Carl listened to like three episodes. So I, I uh, and Carl will tell us whether or not uh, this, these made him sick. But uh, he listened to three episodes, and so you know, he said we're about the woo. Now that, of course, will come up for discussion. I'm sure. Carl, what is it that brought you to the Paracast? Because I noticed that I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we were, I think, the second show that you reviewed. Is that correct? Uh, maybe. Uh, yeah. Strikes me, you might have been the third, or you might have been later on. I, I think I only did about four. It was, it was called pod, podcasting without pity, and as right. sort of the right. title implies, I'm sort of you know I'm I'm a skeptic, and I was sort of going through uh, you know what we we would term like woo podcasts or you know true believer podcasts. Uh, no offense intended, but uh, so yeah, so uh, so I was sort of trying to find those on uh, on iTunes and just sort of doing kind of a very kind of cynical, uh, you know, hopefully humorous review of the you know, the woo podcasts out there. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, website uh, t- Television Without Pity. No, actually not. Oh, okay, that, that, that's where I sort of took the name from. Uh, there's, there's a website called uh, Television Without Pity, and it's just sort of every or pretty much every TV show on television. Somebody just sort of writes a sort of a synopsis about every episode, and, and it's usually you know biting and sarcastic, and you know taking a lot of low blows and stuff like that. So, uh, so Brian Thompson, who sort of is the webmaster, the amateur scientist uh, website, which is also a podcast, amateur scientist podcast, uh, he invited me to sort of write a uh, sort of an ongoing thing on his blog, and I thought, well, geez, you know what, uh, you know. What can I write? And and I thought, oh, you know, maybe it'd be kind of fun to sort of, you know, find some of these odder, you know, sort of paranormal type podcasts and, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, just because re- usually skeptics, we want to be, I mean, a lot of skeptics maybe take low blows, but usually in, in skepticism, you know, we, we try to be, we try to be, you know, fair and, uh, you know, balanced and very unfox television like. But you know, sometimes it is fun just to really rip into something. And, and, and that's what I just really wanted to do. So now, when you first came to the Paracast, you were sort of 
your intention was to blow us out of the water. But reading your thing, that's not exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I took a couple shots at you guys, but I mean, understand it was only, you know, it's only for kind of humor purposes. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you had a lot of the, uh, you know, sort of the icons of sort of the, you know, the UFO world on your podcast. So I'm like, ooh, you know, this should be good. But uh, yeah, so I kind of, I think it was about three or four of your podcasts I listened to, and I, and uh, I think I settled on the one with um, what was that French guy. Oh man, that guy! Uh, yeah, Julian, Eric, Julian, Julian, Eric Julian, yeah. Julian. Yeah, and uh, Neil Adams. Uh, Neil Adams, who's sort of uh, you know expanding Earth hypothesis, or, or, or all the all the bodies in, in the universe are actually you know his his belief is they're all expanding, and uh, I mean he Neil Adams and skepticism's kind of like a uh, he's like uh, you know sort of a favorite uh, you know wooist or you know. Person to uh, to sort of sort of kind of follow. He's a target, as you say. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he he put in an interesting appearance once on a, uh, a skeptical podcast called Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. You know, he became a legend after that. So uh, so I you know I sort of listened to some of those, and and you know, and as I began to listen, I sort of realized, oh yeah, you, you know, you guys are. Uh, I mean, you know, you're approaching this from another side I sort of approach these topics from but you know you're not uh, you know you're not sort of I don't know we call true believers right you you apply you know, reason and, and skepticism to you know the the, the, the stories you're, you're hearing and, and and it was it was it was quite interesting hmm. well you know we, we catch it from both sides of course we have uh, basically a very polarized situation and, and arguably most human discourse at this point tends to be polarized pretty much in any field. So you know, we get the doe-eyed believers who attack us for not believing. And uh, you know, then, of course, we have debunkers. And this is something I want to get into uh, uh, with you. And, and Gene and I are really curious about uh, your definition of the term skeptical because a lot of people think that we're diehard skeptics. And, you know, for, for us, it's just skeptical thinking is something that you should apply to any aspect of life, really. Right. You know, you're, you're kind of coming at this from a, certainly a, a specific position, which is that, uh, like when I first emailed you and you said, I, I don't believe in UFOs. Right, and, right. Uh, uh, and you know what? Here's the thing, Carl. Now, Gene and I, while we have an interest in this topic, Gene will be the first to tell you that he's never seen a UFO, right, Gene? That's right. Never, never had the honor or dishonor of seeing one of those things myself. Right. Unfortunately, some people think fortunately, I'm not, I'm not sure if I agree with that, but I've seen a bunch of stuff. UFOs only being one of the specific phenomena that I've witnessed that I would lump into the anomalous box. The, some people call it paranormal, supernatural, anomalous, unusual, esoteric. So the thing is, Carl... What, what is important for me personally that you understand is that I don't believe in UFOs either. I don't, I don't believe in them. Okay? In the same way that I don't have to believe in a cloud. I mean, the cloud exists. Even though I can't go touch the cloud, when I see a cloud in the sky, I don't have to believe it's there. It's there. Uh, when, I, when I tell you or my audience I've seen UFOs, I'm not attributing sourcing to that thing. I don't know what that is. And on a Paracast, we work very hard to talk to people about the idea that the term extraterrestrial and the word UFO should really be sort of separated because it, honest 
approach to this says that if you don't know what something is, well, if you see something in the sky and it's flying, right, and you don't know what it is, you don't know where it comes from, it's an unidentified flying object. So when you say you don't believe in UFOs, do you believe that every single thing that's been seen in the sky is a known entity? I guess that's my, uh, my question to you. Yeah. Well, I guess when I say I don't believe in UFOs, I, I sort of say it in the same, and I don't mean this to be, in, this to be insulting, but I sort of say it in the same uh, philosophical position as, you know, I don't believe in Santa Claus or I don't believe in, uh, you know, uh, blue fairies. I accept that they're, they're it's possible there's a Santa Claus, or it's possible there's a blue fairy, or it's possible, I don't know, there's a, there's a dinosaur in Loch Ness, but, uh, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't form the belief on, until, until I, I've got, you know, a certain amount of evidence you know, to, support, to, to support the belief. Right. But when we talk about unidentified flying objects, and, and to speak about them, by the way, uh, people who are looking at this who don't like using that term, they've uh, substituted other terminology like UAP, sure. unidentified aerial phenomena, for example. But it, again, just specifically, you know, we're talking about words here. And, and, and by the way, your background is that you're a, you're a, a technical writer, correct? Correct, yeah. I, I think, I think, what are you guys? We sort of share the same career, don't we? Well, sorry. <laughs> I don't know what I am these days. What are you, Gene? <laughs> I haven't figured that out, but I have a technical or technology talk show. I have computer-related online content. I've written a number of computer-related books. I've also written science fiction books. So what do you call me? You're, you're a writer. Yeah, you're, well, you're a real author. I would, I'd throw you in that category because I think te- technical writers were kind of like, uh, you know, it's like DJs were always sort of blamed as being, uh, you know, they want to be musicians. And yeah, I think te- yeah. technical writers, I think we want to be real writers, but it's like we want a paycheck too. So you know. <laughs> that's well put. Actually, and, and uh, in the piece that you wrote, you actually uh, said that, you know, these guys do real stuff. I mean, Gene has written a bunch of computer uh, related books and, and, and articles. So have I. I've written three books, and at this point, it's got to be getting close to, oh, man, I want to say, like, between reviews, opinion pieces, feature articles, I'm probably getting close to a 1,000 pieces over the last 25, oh, God, years. Yeah. And he will stop when he gets it right. <laughs> yeah. That'll be the day. But but the, the point, Carl, is that words have meaning. And I don't need to tell you that. Gene doesn't need to tell you that. I mean, words have meaning. And... And, you know, in the Paracast, we, we believe that words have meaning. <laughs> so, you know, we talk about UFOs, right, unidentified flying objects. When you say you don't believe in them, right, now, you know, blue fairies, Santa Claus, I mean, you know, people will say, well, I saw Santa Claus. Kids say, well, I saw Santa Claus. Well, now you saw somebody dressed up right. like some mythical figure, some, some invention that really doesn't have any bearing on actual reality, right? Right. When one person or dozen people or a thousand people see something in the sky that is, let's say, a thousand feet long or, or bigger, right? So at that point, you know, we, those of us who are logical and rational, you know, we think, what do we have in the sky that's a thousand feet long? <laughs> Nothing, really. Not that I know of. I don't think, I don't think at this point there are even any you know, dirigible stuff that's a thousand feet long. Now, actually, definitely not. That's the size of a cruise ship. So, again, I'm going to pin you on this a little bit because sure. when you say you don't believe in UFOs, could you be more specific about that statement specifically? This is cliffhanger time, ladies and gentlemen.
Hey there, neighbors. Today, I have a very special free promotion. The manufacturer is giving our listeners a free full month supply of beta prostate to all new customers. You know, guys, your prostate can affect your quality of life. And studies show that prostate problems affect a larger majority of men. Listen, guys, your prostate can affect your urine flow and stream, and it might even affect intimacy. Every man over 30 should visit the doctor for a checkup and take what I take, beta prostate. It's so powerful, you have to take 100 saw palmetto capsules in order to get the same natural plant sterols as one beta prostate. This all-natural supplement targets the prostate and provides it with nutrients that help support proper prostate function. Call now because all new customers get beta prostate free by calling 1-800-625-5535. Just pay for the shipping and handling. The bottle is free. Once again, call right now, 1-800-625-5535. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Is your IRS tax problem ruining your life? Hi, I'm Ronnie Deutsch. Don't be another IRS victim, and please don't give up hope. Call me today and let's do something about it. If you have tax problems, call Ronnie Lynn Deutsch, a professional tax corporation, at 800-515-4541. That's 800-515-4541 for your free and confidential tax analysis. That's 800-515-4541 for your free tax guide. Call Ronnie Deutsch's law firm and speak with them today. Not available in New York. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. Carl Mamer, who is a skeptic, but likes us anyway. <laughs> Love so, so far. <laughs> well, that will change in another 45 minutes. <laughs> be, be, be as hard as you want. Okay, so we have a question on the table. You can just pick it up and run with it. Sure, okay. All right, well, yeah, okay, I mean, I, I definitely believe people, well, many people who report UFOs, uh, you know, they, they see something or, or they think they, they see something. You know, it's sort of a, uh, you know, sort of a false dichotomy to sort of, you know, people, some UFO believers will say, well, I guess you think these people are all just lying or they're crazy, you know. Uh, you know, no, that, 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 that human perception is, 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 is fallible. It's like, you know, uh, way, way back, you know, before we're sort of, you know, technologically using society, you know, it was sort of a, a good thing that sort of evolution sort of made us very, you know, jumpy uh, shadows. And, you know, m we mistook a shadow for maybe like a tiger, because if you, you know, if you sort of mistake a shadow for a tiger, you, you look foolish. But if you, you know, if you mistake a tiger for a shadow, you're, you're eaten and you don't pass on your genes. So, so our, our perception is, is ultimately 
flawed in, in, in some way. And, you know, when you're looking up at the sky, which, you know, a lot of times you don't have a, a point of reference. It's just sort of a big blue thing. And it's, it's you know, it's notably hard to, uh, you know, to determine size and speed and, uh, you know, which way something's moving. moving. So, so, yeah, so I think a lot of times people do see something, but, you know, how reliable their their perception is at that you know time of day under those conditions, I, I can't say. So so, yeah, I, I think for the most part that UFO reports are if they're not you know hoaxes or people you know sending up uh, you know little Chinese lanterns or something trying to hoax other people that that it's just it's it's misidentification of natural aerial phenomenon. Okay, so do you know the name Kelly Johnson? Kelly Johnson. Uh, it, it sounds familiar, but... but right. So, for the better part of the 20th century, uh, Kelly was the world's leading aircraft designer. Uh, he designed things like the U-2 spy plane, oh, the right, SS-51 yes. Blackbird, right? Right, yes, okay. One of the greatest minds of the 20th Skunk, century. Skunkworks, skunkworks. Absolutely, you got it. Right. 1953, Kelly Johnson, his wife, and then separately, a bunch of his team... On a high-flying aircraft, they saw something that, based on the triangulation he was able to accomplish between himself and his wife on the ground and his team up in the air, they saw a craft that they calculated to be about 200 feet long. It's sort of a wing-shaped craft that they saw hovering at an altitude of about 15,000 feet. And um, this, this played out over about six or seven minutes. They watched this thing go from hovering to... And this is Kelly Johnson's words. He saw this thing do 130 Gs, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what do you say when you have witness testimony that is qualified in terms of a guy who, at the time, in 1953, this is a guy who knew more about things that were in the air that we knew about and things that were black projects that no one knew about. This right. guy knew more than anybody in the world. Do you think that makes him a more qualified witness than the average person on the street? No, because, um, I mean, you know, my, my, my sort of tiger example, uh, you, know, you know, I believe, believe pilots have sort of a, a similar sort of, you know, maxim. I think it's about, uh, you, know, you know, Venus. A lot of times pilots sort of confuse, you know, Venus for, uh, you know, another plane in the sky. And, and, you know, again, pilots have sort of, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, a rule that, you know, if you confuse, you know, Venus for a, another plane, you, know, you kind of take sudden evasive action, you, you're going to look foolish. But if you, you know, you confuse a plane for Venus, you know, you, you're a dead pilot. So, so e- even the best pilot in the world, I, 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 I think can be ultimately fooled, and pilots know this, can, can be fooled by what, what they see in the sky. And, you know, Kelly Johnson, I mean, you know, he's the man, but he, ultimately he's, he's still human. It's like in a lo- lo- lot of sciences, they like, um, like medical science. If you, like, think if you go to Wikipedia and you, uh, you Google on, uh, bias, like cognitive biases, you know, you know, doctors, doctors have a huge list of, of medical biases, uh, that, that they have to sort of watch out for when they're sort of, you know, testing a drug or testing a treatment. Because, because, because doctors know that, that, you know, that they can be fooled by, by their own observations, by their own sort of mindset, and so you know when we have things like double-blind experiments, we, we we have those because we we want to eliminate, you know the, the you know the, the the human factor that that humans can be fallible in, in their perceptions, and so so 
I mean, I, I don't, I don't see why that same rule shouldn't, shouldn't apply to even, even you know, the best pilot in the world. When you talk about Venus, and you know, we talk a lot in the Paracast about the problem with lights in the sky as anomalous events or anomalous objects, right. because uh, it's really hard to get any kind of a gauge. But the problem with this is that we're not talking about a light in the sky. We're not talking about one person. We're talking about a group of people. We're talking about a structured craft. Now, you know, Venus might move in the sky. I don't think Venus does speed that would give it 130 Gs of gravitational force. Uh, I just, again, the problem here being that when we talk about things, and especially in science, where we end up whittling down observations to try to come up with some sort of a theory about what it is we're observing, you know, to compare a, a structured craft that a group of highly skilled engineers who are used to looking at high-flying aircraft, and these guys are not the, just the guys flying it, they're the guys designing it. It's kind of like the idea of software. Who's right. going to know the software the best? Well, basically, the engineers who wrote the stuff understand the way software works in a way that no user is ever going to be able to understand it. It's just a fact of engineering. That's the deal. The guys who make the stuff, they know more about it than any user Really, truly. So in the, in the case of Kelly Johnson, I'm curious as to the logic you're putting behind the idea that Kelly Johnson seeing a structured craft in daylight and his crew triangulating it, seeing it from an aircraft up high in the sky that was basically trying to follow the thing. I, I don't know how you logically back that up. Okay, l l l let's, let's take a couple of points. Uh, you know, he, uh, he said the craft did like 130 Gs. Well, mm -hmm. I mean... Obviously, he didn't have any kind of equipment, you know, to, to measure, you know, the G's. Well, he was he was sort of going on certain assumptions. If I'm seeing, you know, a craft of a certain amount of size and it's, you know, accelerating at this amount of force, therefore, you know, there's this many G's. So, I mean, that, that sounds impressive. Sure. Sure. Here's the situation. You've never seen the report of this case. Correct. So, yeah. all you know from it is what David told you, which yeah. is basically yeah. a general summary. So you're right. trying to find possible conventional explanations based on his summary of a report that you haven't read, correct? Correct, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Well, we're just having a discussion here. Because okay. uh, let me yeah. throw out another... Cause well, let me, let me just point out, yeah. this, 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 right. okay, without having read this, 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 is, this is how I would sort of first approach that claim. I would go, okay, well, you know, what are some of the observational biases that could, you know, could confound him that, that he might not be necessarily aware of? I mean, you know, you're, you know, you're using that, say, that term, like, you know, 130 Gs, and that, that sounds very impressive, but, but I, I, get, I just got to point out, right, that's sort of, you know, if this is true and this is true and this is true, then 130 Gs, right? And, uh, you know, and again, you, you know, maybe he... He thinks he's seeing a structured craft, but I don't know. You know, there, there's there's a there's a lot of aerial phenomenon where where something could look solid in the sky, but you know, but it's not. Have you ever seen that? Um, there's that sort of a, a, illusion of like kind of like a floating city on the horizon on 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 a on, on a lake or, or sort of a, a you know a large body of water. Actually, the best place to see what you're describing is on the uh, Bonville Salt Flats in Utah. Okay. Yeah, when you see the light, when you look at certain mountains in the Bonville Salt Flats that I've driven through, if you look into the distance at these mountain ranges, what ends up happening is because of the way that light is reflected all of, off of the white salt, it looks like the bottoms of the mountains are sort of gone. Okay. So they almost look like they're they're floating. And then also you have lenticular clouds right. that, are, that are the round clouds. Lenticular clouds, are, of course, are not black. 
Right, yeah. I would grant you that a pilot would probably be familiar with a lenticular cloud, right? Right, right yeah. So, so we, in the case of Kelly Johnson, we have something where there's no, there's no direct observation that's able to determine size. There's certainly no photographic evidence. None of them took pictures that we know of. Right. So let's talk about another case, Skylab 3, okay, 1973. Okay. Which has as one of the, the one of the crew members, a fellow by the name of Dr. Owen Garriott, actually the first yeah, uh, the, scientist in space, right. right? You know who his son is? No. Richard Garriott, you know, the guy who did, uh, you know, the Ultima computer game series? Oh, yeah, Lur Sor, what is the Lord, uh, Sir Lord L- British? Lord, Brit- Lord British, right, yeah. Oh, that's his son? Yeah, that's his son. Yeah. It's a small world, there you go. Yeah. So, I did yeah, not notice. Yeah, because he, 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 he sort of, you know, I mean, he's a rich guy, so he paid sort of a flight up into space uh, a, few, a few months ago, and I think he be- became the first sort of father and son astronaut sort of yeah, dynasty ever or something. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, a bit of trivia, right? Well, sorry. No, no, go that's go. good. That's good. We love trivia. <laughs> okay, <All right>. go <laughs> ahead. Okay, so in uh, September 20th, 1973, okay. these guys see something that they end up taking four photographs of. And what happened was, because of the way Skylab was moving from light into dusk, okay. um, where they have a known entity, a known speed, they were able to determine the distance that this thing, which was also, it was, and the photographs of this thing are, are really stunning. And these photographs exist. You, you can find these photographs uh, on the lovely internets. But uh, they, they were able to determine, specifically determine, that this thing was about 25 miles away from them. They were able to determine that it was between 800 to 900 feet in length. This thing had a, has a specific shape, okay? It's not some weird light phenomena. It's not some weird, you know, it's, it is uh, some sort of a craft, 800 to 900, I think it's actually 800 to 1,000 feet long. At that time, Skylab was the biggest thing we had in space. Now, they generated photographic evidence of this, four photographs, clear photos. They were able to determine size. So, uh, and again, you know, you don't have, I I didn't send you these cases ahead of time. We're just having a conversation here. But presented with that, where you've got guys who do take the time to determine distance, length, and get photographic evidence. Just throwing this on the table, what's your response to something like that? Well, again, you know, sort of a a skeptic at first approach it, you know, without, you know, sort of Google on it right now, I I would say, okay, well, well, who is, uh, you know, Who's making the claim that you know that they they say that it was they calculated it to that to that size? Is is that coming from the you know it's from coming that, from them? It's yeah. coming from the astronauts themselves. And yeah. I, I also want to see the, like the the full quote because you know quote mining is is sort of you know kind of a, a tool sometimes people sort of used you know like especially like the uh, you know like the ID the uh, intelligent design and the creationist people you know they 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 tend to quote mine a lot. So you you encounter a lot of quote mines. So you know I, I'd like to see like the the full quote, but barring that, if it's you know full and accurate quote, then you know then uh, then again, I'd, I'd like to see sort of a uh, you know another opinion by you know by somebody might, who might be a bit more f- sort of familiar with uh, you know with other possible ex- natural explanations. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I, not having that information before me, I don't know. But but like I say, as, as a skeptic, that's how I'd sort of uh, uh, approach it. I go, well, you know that. That's a pretty incredible claim coming from an astronaut, right? That he saw a how, how big is a thousand feet, eight hundred feet, eight hundred to a thousand feet. Yeah. Okay, right. So, so uh, some, I mean, you, we we don't put anything up. I think a thousand feet long, at least not you know in one big piece. I think we fly it up in, <laughs> in two or three different pieces, right? Something a thousand feet long. So it's 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 clearly not 
you know, something anybody launched in, into space, you know, from, from Earth. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that either it leads the possibility something not of this world or, uh, you know, I, again, a, you know, some sort of, you know, misidentification, misperception of, you know, of, of the size. Business travel is a profitability killer. You know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You know, Neighbor is one of the hardest jobs in organizing this show and our websites was finding the right host to get everything online. We've used a number of these companies, and there are lots of good ones to choose from, but the very best is One and One Internet. One and One Internet is part of United Online. It's a large European telecom company that's been in business since the 1980s. So you can bet they know what they're doing, and there are millions of individuals and companies out there who depend on One and One Internet to get online and stay online. Right now, One and One Internet is having a big special. From the cheapest email hosting package to the large dual quad-core server that we're using, you can bet that you'll get a full package of the services you really need at a price that's far lower than you might expect. From registering a domain to hosting a full-fledged business site, use the same host we do, One and One Internet. To get the latest special deals, point your browser to theparacast.com slash host. That's theparacast.com slash host for the best value in hosting your personal or business sites. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to Carl Mamer. He's a skeptic, as you can hear, and he's trying to find maybe solid answers without citing any specific case. Have you heard any of the cases that involve simultaneous radar tracking and visual tracking of a UFO? Yeah, I mean, nothing nothing specific. But again, that's always sort of, you know, uh, evidence that a UFO proponent sort of put forward, you know, radar. Okay, so looking at any potential radar case where you see what appears to be the same thing in the same location that you track on radar, what possibilities do you see that are, shall we say, conventional? Well, I mean, for, first, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of want to verify if that, that's actually true, you know, that if it's sort of been, if there are those kinds of, kinds of cases, you know, it's sort of 
well documented. Uh, but he, he, and again, I, I have no expertise whatsoever in radar, but radar is not is not infallible, right? That it can return, you know, false false positives. So and you know, those are those are sort of those are sort of known, right? So uh, it could be that, right? Hmm. Well, see, like like we said, Carl, you know, we we don't on this show we don't take a specific stance and say this is what we are dealing with because we honestly don't know. At the same time, we're honest and we say we don't know. But in the case of something that's, for example, a mile long that's seen outside the Earth's atmosphere, I'm pretty sure the following statement is accurate. I don't think we've ever put anything up in the sky that uh, any solid vehicle that's a, a thousand feet long. Right. Um, thousand. So you know, for reference, a thousand feet is the size of a fairly decent cruise ship. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I worked on a cruise ship for six weeks a number of years ago. The the constellation we actually called it the constipation for specific reasons that are not part will not be part of this particular show. But uh, that thing was a thousand feet long. That's a huge, huge vessel. I mean, it, it's just a, a massive thing. There have been reports. You look at something like the infamous Phoenix lights from like ten, eleven years ago, where there were two separate incidents. There was an incident that happened later in the evening that we're pretty sure was was essentially flares was not a ufo Mm -hmm. meanwhile earlier in the evening hundreds of witnesses including fife symington the then governor of uh of arizona uh who was also uh, correct me if i'm wrong gene was he not an air force pilot at one point i don't recall that credential so i don't want to verify it yeah okay so uh, but basically he actually came out late many years later and said yeah, I saw this thing too. Um, this this craft, this thing that was blocking out the stars, moving silently through the sky. That again, hundreds of witnesses saw this thing, and the way it was described, the the the, the scale of this thing was thousands of feet long. Now, again, we don't. I don't think humans have built many structures, solid structures of any sort that are thousands of feet long. So. Again, just from just from a curiosity point of view, because I mean, in science, you, you end up seeing something, and now you try to work backwards. You have an observation. That observation leads you to create some sort of a hypothesis, which you then put to the test. See if you can come up with a theory, and if you can, you know, corroborate and confirm that theory with e- e- experimental uh, evidence and repeatability. Now you're moving into into what is you know sort of considered hard science. <laughs> so, at what point? As someone who says that they're a scientific thinker, I mean, at what point do you take an observation at like seeing something a thousand feet long? You know, let's say, just for argument's sake, take a look at what you're seeing, what multiple people are seeing. You have visual evidence. You have been able to determine scale. Isn't there a process by where you say, okay, we don't know what it is, but we know what it isn't? Is that is that scientifically an, an approach to understanding something? Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, in, in science, you know, obviously you, you have your hypothesis, and then you know, a, a good scientist sort of, you know, initially tries to figure, well, what are the objections to, you know, to my hypothesis? You know, uh, what are other possible explanations? And then you quite, you know, methodically try to eliminate all of them, and then you know, you sort of you do your best, and you write up your paper, and you submit it for peer review, and then you know, usually peer reviewers always come up with things you've not. You know, you've not considered because you know we're, we're human, and sometimes we are blinded to other possibilities. And uh, and then those peer reviewers say, "Well, did, you know, you have to eliminate this, and you have to eliminate that." E- Sometimes those things can even be very, uh, very remote. You know, 
like the guys who uh, you know uh, dis- you know discovered the uh, you know the cosmic background radiation you know with, uh, with the radio telescope. But you know they they kept getting this this background noise no matter where they pointed their telescope, and they quite methodically tried to eliminate every single possibility, even to the point where they they were sort of scrubbing the inside of the telescope of bird droppings because they wanted to el- eliminate even that. I mean, someone might say, well, it could be bird droppings. And you go ha ha ha. You know what a foolish thing. But you know if you're a really good scientist, you just do it. You get rid of those bird droppings so there can be no possible objection you know however unlikely that's what a good scientist does if you know skylab guys i mean how how many were up there like three or four okay three those are astronauts and those are those are very credible guys you know and uh and if they really did find you know see something that was like a thousand feet long in space clearly we could not have put it there then they should write that up they should write that up as a paper and they should submit that to you know to a journal and they should you know and they should be peer-reviewed and they should be able to answer the peer-reviewed criticism you know and because they would be even more famous you know i mean they're already famous for being astronauts but but to have a paper in, in in a space journal or an aeronautical journal where they have seen something in space a thousand feet long that that passes peer review that would be incredible and if they're scientists they've been through the scientific process they have to know this process right they have to know you know you spit these things at peer review and then i collect my Nobel prize you know so i, I don't know why, why don't they submit it for publication i would hazard to guess that they wanted to remain astronauts to ignore the stigma attached to these subjects certainly you 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 wouldn't claim to ignore what happens to a lot of people who are involved with hard scientists who have anomalous experiences it's not exactly a way to further your career by talking about them because of the negative baggage associated with these things, right? You don't have to phrase it like, I've seen a UFO, right? You don't have to phrase it like that. I mean, you can, a lot of scientists publish really incredible ideas. I mean, like Einstein, right? You know, I, you know, special relativity, right? Uh, relativity. I mean, if you look at the titles on some of the papers they submit that are just groundbreaking things, that they're incredibly boring, prosaic sounding titles. You know, you don't write a paper and say, this is going to change everything. You write very prosaic sort of sounding titles and experiments and and people can go from scientists can go from there so you know a lot of scientists you know they come up with very very radical ideas that you know that that are initially rejected by you know by the scientific community and and they're not necessarily rejected because you know it breaks the paradigm it's just that the other scientists they they want you to cover your butt they want you to make sure you have eliminated all these possibilities i don't know if you, you know the guy who uh who sort of demonstrated that i don't know if it's all ulcers or the majority of ulcers are caused by uh, bacteria called H. pylori. Okay, you know, he, he faced a lot of skepticism, but he didn't worry about being sort of drummed out of, you know, the science core. He did the hard work and, you know, and he established, you know, the, the reality of, of his hypothesis and he, he won a Nobel Prize for it. So, I don't know. I, I just I just think that these, these astronauts are pretty tough stuff, right? You know, and as long as they're not c- coming out screaming, you know, I saw a UFO, you know, it's the Mayan sky gods are here, you know, something like that, you know, just again i i have an issue with your use of terminology i mean if you see something in the sky you don't know what it is and it's flying i'm i'm a little perplexed here by your sort of statement i understand sort of where you're coming from that to say okay i saw a ufo again that means an unidentified flying object that's not assigning any sourcing 
or provenance to it. So I guess for you, though, when you say UFO, you're, you're kind of using it in the, the pejorative sense. You're, you're, you're using it in the, in the sense that, okay, UFOs are stupid things that aren't real. That's sort of well, what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. No, no, I mean, now, now, now you're sort of stupid thing. No, like I say that, I don't think people, people are, are stupid who see, who's, majority of people who see UFOs, right? I think they're just either, either, you know, they're, they're human and they're, they're, they're subject to, you know, you know, uh, biases in human perception. So, right. so, uh, Gordon Cooper, Gemini astronaut, you've heard of the man? Yeah. 1958, Edwards Air Force Base. He and some other men witness right in front of them broad daylight. He's told the story more than a few times. Oh, I've heard uh, that one, yeah. You, you know this story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, refresh my memory, though. All right. They're out on the tarmac. Disc-shaped craft, double lenticular uh, shape, comes down out of the sky. Three landing, three pieces of landing gear, struts come out. This thing lands, sits on the, the sand for I don't know how long. They go, they get a film camera. They're shooting this thing at relatively close proximity. They watch it take off and zip away at a very high speed. This is in 1958 at Edwards right. Air Force Base. He has the film developed. He looks at the film. He sees that they've got clear footage of this shot, and he sends it forward. And and when interviewed, Gordon Cooper, you know, is asked, "Well, you know, what happened to this thing?" He says, "It was top secret. It wasn't my job to know where the thing went. I developed the film. I passed it on." Now he was there. He witnessed this thing land. So there's no Venus happening here. This is a structured metallic craft landing in front of them. They shoot film. This thing takes off in front of them. What's your response to that? Was Gordon Cooper seeing things? I'm sure he saw something, right? But, uh, you know, what, what was the year again, 1958? I mean, Correct. obviously the military is experimenting with all kinds of different aircraft, you know, uh, you know, possible spacecraft, things like that, right? So, I mean, it's entirely possible he saw an experimental military craft, right? And uh, obviously people are trying to study at that time, you know, you know, you know like the Harrier jump jets, right? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's important technology to have, especially, you know, you know, on, on the battlefield. And, you know, you, again, like said, like the, you know, the, you know, the stealth technology, you don't want to tell the whole world you have it, right? Because <laughs> that, that gives your, that gives your enemy a certain, you know, certain, uh, certain advantage or, you know, it eliminates your advantage. So, you know, being able to, you know, uh, land, you know, jets on a beach, and uh, you know, take off from a beach. You know, you, you maybe want to keep that capability secret, or you're, you know, you're a few years away from developing that that sort of technology. So, I don't know. I mean, how, how do you know it wasn't that? It wasn't a uh, some sort uh, of. Well, uh, I'll tell you how I know. Because the reason I do the Paracast with Gene is that I have personally witnessed pretty wide range of all sorts of anomalous phenomena, not just UFOs. I don't claim to have any answers or any real explanations for any of this stuff. But I, I will tell you what I do know. Jets make a lot of noise. All aircraft make a lot of noise. A lot of noise. Anybody who's ever been near a jet uh, moving at high speed, and sadly, at an air show in Caracas, Venezuela in 1974, I got to hear fighter jets at very close proximity. And when those things rev up, when those things are moving... Uh, they're really loud. A Harrier jet is insanely loud. Now, I personally have seen, at relatively close proximity, a disc-shaped craft go from hovering about 200 feet in the air to shooting straight up and disappearing with no sound whatsoever. And not only that, but no 
visible acceleration. Now, I've explained this on this show before, this particular sighting that I had, which was a daylight sighting. And this thing was hovering above my house in New Jersey. It had followed us about a mile and a half, two miles home. Uh, my brother, my father, myself, we were driving. This thing followed us. It was hovering just a couple hundred feet above our house and then shot straight up. Now, when I say shot straight up, it didn't gradually achieve high velocity. It went from full stop to full speed in one shot. I've never seen anything like this before, certainly since. Now, no sound. What Gordon Cooper describes is this craft coming down, landing right in front of them. He describes that it had no sound. This is something that is uh, quite common to a number of relatively credible UFO sightings. And, and Carl, I want to specify here that as you've listened to the show, you know that we understand that a large number, certainly a majority defined as 51% or more, of UFO sightings, acclaimed UFO sightings, can indeed be explained, a large number of them, but there is a percentage, more than a couple of percent, that definitely cannot be explained with conventional uh, technology filling in the role of this is what happened. Now, in the case of Gordon Cooper and what he claims that they saw, and, and, and I have to believe the man, I, you know, part of when you, when you look at these things, when you talk to people about these topics, you always look for motivation. Why is someone going to make a certain claim? And you know, I mean, I don't need to, we don't need to tell you that for a lot of people, not only do they misrepresent what it is they've seen or, or just outright lie, but for many of these people, their motivation is to get some attention. Because <laughs> why else would someone say they've seen something really messed up? Unless A, they're, they're seeking attention, or B, they, they really saw the thing. Now, in the case of Gordon Cooper, this was a guy who had a lot to lose by stating that he had seen certain things. And that was not his only UFO sighting, but certainly that was his most dramatic and his closest in terms of proximity. So when he say, says he saw this thing come down, and it came down with no sound, it uh, doesn't sound like any technology that we have. Now, again, uh, we're not claiming that we understand what this thing was, but pretty much outside of you know balloons, anything that we've got that flies in the air, makes a pretty significant amount of noise. That thing apparently made no noise at all. I'll tell you what, before we get an answer from Carl. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have Carl Mamer, skeptic, and we are handing him the questions, and we're going to await an answer. Carl? All right. 
you guys also plug my, my conspiracy skeptic podcast? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Might sort of, you know, be a good thing to do. Like, who, well, who is this guy? I mean, he wrote one thing on a blog about you guys. but you know, like, And he's going to live that down one day, but we don't know yeah. when. If you, I'll mention to you, I sort of do a, a podcast called The Cons- Conspiracy Skeptic. And, and uh, yeah, they can Google for it and find it. But, yeah. <laughs> And you've got, well, I think it's like, how many episodes there are? Uh, well, you said in, I think in the first episode, you said you're only going to do a dozen of them. Do 12, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, www.yrad.com yeah, forward slash CS. CS, yeah. As in Cat Sam. Or Conspiracy um, Skeptic. <laughs> there you go, Conspiracy Skeptic. But what, when you've got a situation like that, Claire, where, you know, the thing, and again, I'm bringing this up because I have seen one of these things at close proximity, go to speed with no sound. What technology are you aware of that can move something in the sky at very high velocity with no sound? Well, let's stick with the, the Gordon, uh, the Gordon, the Gordon Cooper sighting. Sure. Uh, Gordo. Uh, you know, when, when, when did he start sort of telling, telling people about, about his, about his, about his sighting? I'm not sure about that. The, the first reference I saw to it was about 12 years ago. Okay, twelve years. So, I mean, now I mean, I'm not calling him a liar, right? But and uh, you know, but again, if he's sort of recalling this after the fact, you know, I mean, maybe he maybe he doesn't remember remember the sound. I know I know it sounds a, a little strange, but you know what I mean. He uh, you, you don't necessarily remember all all pertinent details of something. You know, maybe. Uh, you sort of have witnessed that's you know sort of confusing you right like uh, you know an unknown military craft I will, I will grant you I don't know what could land in front of him that makes no sound and then you know and then sort of suddenly you know pops up in the sky and flies away quite rapidly that makes absolutely no sound but you know if we're, if we're going purely on on his memory you know maybe he he's sort of you know forgotten that detail or you know you're kind of reaching here I think I, I don't know. You know, the, the 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 Gordo story is one of those sort of uh, stories that are sort of out there, and you have to sort of go. I don't know. You know, I don't want to call him a liar, but you know, you know, sometimes sometimes stories just get better in in the re, the re, retelling. You know, um, if you listen to a podcast called um, oh, Skeptoid, Brian Dunning, you know, he 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 did a whole episode of the uh, I don't even know how to pronounce that. The Rendell Rendelsheim Rendelsheim, yeah, Rendelsheim. Yeah, forest UFO, right? Yeah. And and you know, and Brian did sort of a pretty good job of sort of documenting you know, one of the one of the witnesses how you know his, his story kind of got better and better over the years as he appeared on different TV shows and you know told and retold a story. So, so do you recall which witness we're talking about? Because we've had a couple of episodes very recently on Rendlesham, and it would be nice to know what witness we're mentioning here. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't tell you, but if you, if you, if you do go to the sort of the skeptoid, skeptoid.com podcast site, you know, it, he'll, he'll have mentioned it, but yeah, so I don't know. I mean, sometimes stories just get better in the telling. I mean, we, we all, you know, we all have sort of certain stories about, you know, friends and family and stuff. And that over the years, as we retell it, you know, we, we, we embellish the, the story a little bit and drop certain details and things like that to make, make it a better story. We're, are we lying? Well, we're not really lying. We're just, you know, trying to tell a better story. Yeah, but so, would Gordon Cooper want to do that? You know, you could say, well, David Bietney does a paranormal radio show, so maybe he's embellishing what happened. And we're not saying that, but certainly that's the implication here. So I, if I, we concentrate I, on Gordon Cooper, 
Gordon Cooper is a very well-known astronaut. He's not the kind of person, I don't think, who would embellish stories just for the heck of it, especially a story like that. What's the motive? Where's the logic in that, as someone once said? Well, I, I, would, I would trust David in anything, so let me just get that out there. That's why well, I'm you, not sh- you shouldn't. You don't, you don't know me. No, no, yeah. seriously. But see, the thing is, we don't automatically assume that people are telling the truth about things. Like I said, Carl, you look for motivation. Some people could say, well, okay, I've got this paranormal show with Gene, so uh, you know, I'll make a story up. Meanwhile, I've been very careful to primarily focus on this show on experiences I had with other witnesses. And uh, in three cases, three people who underwent extremely anomalous experiences have come forward with their real names, no anonymity, and have gone on record with these things. In one case, one of my friends is a guy who's been working at Business Week for, I don't know, 15 years? This is a guy with a career and a family. And he came on the show and talked about something so odd that I know that if I told you what it was, you would laugh and go, well, that's crap. But yet it happened. Now, you know, we don't understand what happened, but we, we have some, some fairly solid stuff in terms of us knowing that we underwent something highly, highly unusual. So in the case of, so you shouldn't believe anything I say. Who am I? When I bring on co-witnesses, I think that changes the dynamic a little bit. And in the case of Gordon Cooper, this is a guy who, I think a lot of people would agree, has a very high level of integrity. And so, you know, to, to just say, well, he's not remembering it the right way, I, I, would, I would suggest that you consider the possibility that when you have an extremely odd or extremely intense experience in your life, in some ways, the details of that gets burned into your mind in, in an intensity that is unusual. And, and up specifically, that air show that I talked about in 74, late 74 in Caracas, Venezuela, I have an extremely clear memory of that event, not because it was the first time I was that close to airplanes, but at that event, there was a plane that lost control, a fighter jet, and plowed into an apartment building. I think 13 people died, if I'm not wrong. But I'll tell you this, and and I could actually demonstrate this on Google Earth, where the airstrip was in Caracas, there was this inverted pyramid commercial building at one far end of where the airstrip was. The plane was going in its weird fashion, went down behind that building, and then there was an explosion, and we saw black smoke come up from behind this inverted pyramid building. And the plane had hit an apartment building right near this canal that runs through the center of the city. Apparently, the pilot was trying to dump out into the canal to not to not hit anything, because I guess he knew he was going to die. That was it. And the plane, he couldn't get it into this canal, but instead it plowed to this apartment building. And um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is that I'm sitting here remembering this, and I can tell you that the the way that that smoke came up from behind the building, and the way that everybody around us just sort of froze that smoke and the explosion and and, and the smoke, which kind of happened almost at the same time, n- no one who was there can forget that 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 memory is burned in my mind with an intensity that is such that I can recall what that th- what that smoke looked like like it happened yesterday. So, I'm bringing this up because in the case of Gordon Cooper, you're witnessing something extremely unusual that's happening right in front of you. I find it intellectually a little shaky for you to claim that then that person is going to have such significantly different memories of what actually happened that as to completely color the story, it seems to me, like Gene said, 
you're, you're stretching a bit. Well, in, in, in psychology, there's a, it's called flashbulb memory, where, you know, like, we've all had those, like, where were you when, uh, you know, the space shuttle blew up, or you, where were you, you 9-11, where were you when John Lennon was assassinated, these, 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 these kinds of things, right? I was in front of a pet computer in high school, what, John Lennon was assassinated, but, uh, uh, and we, we call them flashbulb memory, and, and when we've long made the assumption that, that these sort of memories are, you know, incredibly accurate, and it's sort of not, you know, sort of subject to, you know, the, the normal fallacies of memory. But if you sort of sort of check online, you know, re- research has sort of come out lately that sort of shows, well, you know, flashbulb memory isn't quite as accurate as, you know, we, we, we've sort of assumed it to be, that, that it is, you know, sort of subject to, you know, sort of the, the, the march of time, the way sort of time sort of sometimes plays with it, with our memories of events. So that's basically my, my answer to that, that, you know, you know, largely, yes, you know, those flashbulb memory events, you know, we, we do remember, you know, a lot of details and we're, we're convinced of the, uh, you know, the accuracy of, of those memories. But like I say, there, there's, there's, there's some recent research that sort of indicates, well, maybe they're not quite as, quite as, uh, as, as accurate as possible. And again, sort of coming back to the, you know, to the Gordon Cooper thing, I, I just don't know without without sort of delving more into the story. It's been it's been a number of years since I've sort of right. read about read about that. But uh, like I say, his 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 memory might not be completely accurate. And well, the other thing is here: is he taking it just from his memory, or does he have a diary or some set of notes that he can resort to? We don't know. Or do you? Yeah, know? exactly. I don't know. But but let me let me. Um, well, what did he see? You know, and then this is where we skeptics we, we, we bring into the uh, you know into the into the argument that something called Occam's razor, which, which is usually sort of d- defined sort of incorrectly as like the simplest explanation is, is the best explanation. Which uh, sometimes UFO people then sort of use like well. UFOs should be real because you know you know you're you're invoking for you know every sighting you're invoking a phenomenon for this and you know uh, you know hoax for that and you're 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 sort of you've got this very uh, complicated explanation to account for all these sightings whereas you know the uh, you know the simplest explanation is you know well everyone's seeing uh, you know a you know spaceship or something like that and and, and that's not quite the the, the correct definition of Aquas well it's Ray. not quite what we say here on the Paracast either we say. That something strange may be going on, but we don't know what it is. We'd like you to stay around a little bit longer. Sure. And if you're willing to do that, before we break for our hourly break, perhaps you can tell our listeners again where they can find your podcast, The Conspiracy Skeptic. Yeah. Yeah. So they can go to my my website at uh, uh, YRAD, W-R-A-D dot com forward slash CS, CS for Conspiracy Skeptic. Or, I mean, you can just Google on Conspiracy Skeptic. Put it in quotes, I think, because then I will certainly pop up number one. But, yeah. That's that's where you can find me and check out my podcast. And Carl Mamer will rejoin you on the other side of the Paracast. The No Neighbor is one of the hardest jobs in organizing this show and our websites was finding the right host to get everything online. We've used a number of these companies, and there are lots of good ones to choose from, but the very best is One and One Internet. One and One Internet is part of United Online. It's a large European telecom company that's been in business since the 1980s. So you can bet they know what they're doing, and there are millions of individuals and companies out there who depend on One and One Internet to get online and stay online. 
Right now, One in One Internet is having a big special. From the cheapest email hosting package to the large dual quad-core server that we're using, you can bet that you'll get a full package of the services you really need at a price that's far lower than you might expect. From registering a domain to hosting a full-fledged business site, use the same host we do, One and One Internet. To get the latest special deals, point your browser to theparacast.com slash host. That's theparacast.com slash host for the best value in hosting your personal or business sites. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Carl Mamer, he is the conspiracy skeptic. And we're talking about the subjects of his disbelief. We've gone into UFOs. We're going to explore Occam's Razor, and maybe he feels we shaved it a little bit too much. What do you have to say? I was just saying before the break, a lot of times people quote Occam's Razor as, you know, the simplest explanation is the best explanation. But, but the, the actual sort of formulation of Occam's Razor is don't, don't invent entities needlessly okay so but before you you know before you sort of invent space aliens who have come from another dimension or another planet to sort of explain a certain phenomenon uh you know you you have to consider known entities uh and it was just sort of discussed before um you know hoaxes people misperceiving things you know people sort of you know they have a memory that they sort of embellish a bit over time things things like that so that that is how i approach these you know the, these questions and I, I guess you have sort of stated yourself that you know that's how you approach it you don't you don't sort of say there's something going on out there therefore it's ufos you're just saying there's something going on out there correct well yeah but I, I, I guess I sort of kind of extend that and go, all right, well, there's something going on out there. But first, I, I want to apply natural known explanations to, to the phenomenon of people seeing things in the sky, people uh, you know, saying they've been taken aboard spaceships, or people waking up in the middle of the night and seeing a being at the end of their bed, those, those, those kinds of things. We understand what your point of view is. We're not going to convince you today, but... The only thing I would urge you to do before we progress to any more subjects is possibly look at some of the cases that David has cited and find the flaws. That's fine. Go find the flaws, find what might be missing there, and find some responsible alternative conclusions. I think the kind of skeptical approach that David and I tend to not favor is the debunker who says, that can't be true regardless of the facts at hand. I hope I don't do that. I mean, you know, I'm not it, saying you're doing yeah, it. I'm not yeah. saying you're doing it. I'm <laughs> saying that's the kind of skepticism that really bothers us. It's, it's an easy thing to fall into. I mean, you do need to be sort of reminded of that and sort of kept in check as, as, as a skeptic. But I have a question for you, Carl. Sure. Because Gene and I certainly, well, I can speak for myself here, before I ever got interested in this stuff, and even as things were happening to me that I didn't understand, I've always been a technologist. When people ask me what I do for a living, I say, I'm a technologist. That, that's what I do. I use technology. I write about technology. Sometimes I design technology. I have very specific areas of interest in technology, like electronic music instruments, computer graphics, software, and now increasingly advanced communications technology. With specific areas of specialization, I've, I've always been fascinated by image compression. Uh, multimedia has always been something that's really fascinated me. So I'm a technologist first and foremost, Okay. And so let's talk about the language of technology for a minute. I'm curious, in your opinion, where do you think humans' level of technological expertise lies? If you had to sort of qualify us as a technological species, on a scale of, of 1 to 10, where would you put us technologically? 
<laughs> I mean, I don't know if you can apply the, 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 the one to ten. I mean, we, we are where we are, right? And we have, you know, what's out there to be discovered. I think humans will end as a race before we ever discover it all, right? So, so I think, you know, I'm more probably, you know, Point oh 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 one on on that scale, so I don't know. I, I just think yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of times, sort of skeptics are, are sort of accused of like, well, you think we just know everything, you know? And there's there's a lot more out there to know, and you know, I agree. You know, I don't, I think as, as a you know as a sort of a culture, we only know a little bit of what's out there to be known. Sure, maybe maybe you know maybe one day we'll be able to cross dimensions or you know light years of space and be the ufos in in another world sky but i'll believe it when i see it right well see now you just said something really interesting that was and you you fell into my trap you see oh thank you <laughs> no you did because you just said the magic words you believe it when you see it sure uh, i think that's really important by the way just stepping back for a moment i personally would tend to agree with you i think technologically given that we don't even tap the direct energy of our star technologically we're in the stone ages I strongly believe that, okay? But you just said something very interesting. You believe it when you see it. So were you one of the guys back in the 1850s, 1860s, latter part of the 19th century when confronted with the idea of matter being made up of things, little tiny pieces you couldn't see? Were you one of the guys then that also said, I'll believe it when I see it? I'm curious. It all depends. Is can I go and read, you know, journal articles arguing for, you know, the atomic model? Do you know? Do you know P.Z. Myers? He's a sort of a biologist. He he was in that movie Expelled. He, he sort of is a evolutionary scientist. I don't know, sort of the uh, the great scourge of the creationists. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, P- P.Z. He, he sort of makes a point that the you know the, the best question you can ever ask a scientist is ask him, well, well how how do we know that? Sort of a scientist is saying, you know, reading out a textbook and saying this, you say, well, you know, how do we know the Earth is uh, four billion years old? How do we know that? And then, you know, and they'll say, well, we know that because of this. And then you have to say, well, how do we know that? And they'll say, we know that because of this. Well, how do we know that? And there's a huge chain right down to, you know, sort of first principles. I guess ultimately it's like, well, how do we know that? They'll say, well, we don't know, right? <laughs> you know, we, we haven't gotten down that far yet. But well, it, um, It's a subtractive process. I mean, it's basically yeah. a subtractive process versus an additive process. Though there are people who, who would suggest even that the subtractive process is not necessarily the most productive. But what you're describing is essentially process of elimination in certain ways and which is by the way i mean this is what we try to do on the paracast process right. of elimination which is that you know if you've got something that is let's say a certain size you know, well does that compare to what we've made mm, no okay so what do we know well chances are we didn't make it we don't assign providence or sourcing to it at that point we're very particular about that we, we actually have gotten in a lot of fights with people who s- make statements that you know that the ufos that have been retrieved have technology that we've reverse engineered that means that this is where transistors came from right and you know we we say well that's just crap what are you talking about and i think you, you know you specifically in the piece you wrote about us pointed out that you know i think it was eric julian who et technology which you know that just is kind of goofy and and we call them on that saying look you can't make these these sweeping statements and expect people to take them seriously we see that the problem is carl that because we live in this polarized world as centrists and i do believe gene and i in this field are squarely in the center we get to look at both sides of this we're the blue dog ufologists well (laughs) we're not really ufologists i mean i'm i'm an experiencer trying to understand what i've seen 
and experience. I don't claim to, to know at this point. I, I don't have any answers, really. And, of course, in this field, people are really looking for answers. And whoever has something that sounds like an answer, that's who people sort of flock to. We're not doing that here. But, see, it kind of sounds like, and you'll forgive me for saying this, it sounds like you're saying you have answers, too. Now, that's what it's sounding like to me, because when presented with a credible witness, with no questionable motivation, with solid statements, you have an answer to why that person shouldn't be believed. And I wonder about that. Again, we come back to intellectual honesty here, which is that, you know, if you're willing to say, and again, like we say, I don't know. If you're willing to say, I don't know, to me, that's like the most honest answer when confronted with something that you don't know, is to say, I don't know. Versus saying, well, maybe, it's like, mm, you know, when, and again, we discount the majority of claims that people make about this stuff, but it's kind of like listening to Seth Shostak on the Larry King show, who said that pilots are not better observers, visual observers, than anyone else. And I thought to myself, that is highly intellectually dishonest, and in fact, you better hope they are more visually observing than other people, because... They really need that skill in order to fly a plane. That's sort of a bottom-line kind of an issue. Now, I'm not saying that pilots fly their planes exclusively on visual acuity, and in today's world of you know autopilot and Loran and all of the technology that's used to electronically guide planes through the air, you still need the pilot there because specifically because of the fact that their eyes and their decision-making skills, hopefully expert decision-making skills, will serve the purpose of keeping people safe. But, you know, when Shostak made that statement on Larry King, I don't know how anybody, a skeptic, well, any any rational thinker could back up that statement. I'm perplexed. I don't know if you remember, you know, like courtroom dramas from the 70s and the 80s. A lot of times they always use the term uh, expert observer, someone who's profession sort of qualifies them as an expert in sort of observing things. They don't really talk about that anymore because, I mean, that's a fairly easy claim to test, right? You know, our pilots, police officers, you know, scientists, you know, people whose job it is, you know, to, to observe, are they better observers? And you can bring them into a lab and, you know, show them a picture and then show them another picture and say, well, what's missing? And, and, and those people actually, you know, don't really do any better than, than average. And so, so when Seth said that, you know, that's what he might have been re- referring to that, you know, that the, you know, sort of the expert observer phenomenon is, is, you know, sort of largely, largely a myth. And, and yeah, I think, you know, pilots, they have to be good observers within their, you know, within their, their domain. What's that, you know, blinking light doing, you know, that might pass by you and I, but, you know, a pilot's going to know exactly what that blinking light is for, you know, so. Um, yes, but wouldn't it be, Carl, an expert observer would be someone who, can supposedly qualify as knowledgeable in a specific area. If you test them in every category of observation, they may not do very well, and as you say, no better than anybody else. But within the framework of their so-called expertise, wouldn't they do better? Wouldn't they score better? Is that what's been tested or a general sense of observability? General sense of observability. If if you're trying to sort of say, like, well, you know, he's a pilot and, you know, therefore he's a better witness to this car accident, well, then that's that's not true. But but again... If you say he's a pilot and maybe he's a better witness to things in the sky... (laughs) 
Hey there, neighbors. Today I have a very special free promotion. The manufacturer is giving our listeners a free full month supply of beta prostate to all new customers. You know, guys, your prostate can affect your quality of life. And studies show that prostate problems affect a larger majority of men. Listen, guys, your prostate can affect your urine flow and stream, and it might even affect intimacy. Every man over 30 should visit the doctor for a checkup and take what I take, beta prostate. It's so powerful, you have to take 100 saw palmetto capsules in order to get the same natural plant sterols as one beta prostate. This all-natural supplement targets the prostate and provides it with nutrients that help support proper prostate function. Call now because all new customers get beta prostate free by calling 1-800-625-5535. Just pay for the shipping and handling. The bottle is free. Once again, call right now, 1-800-625-5535. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. By the way, we have Carl Mamer. He is a conspiracy skeptic. So if the pilot, who supposedly is trained to see what's going on in the sky around him, at least within a certain area of competence, if he sees something he can't explain, it doesn't mean it's from Mars, it's from Venus, it's from another dimension, it's the Zeta Reticulans or it's the Klingons, it doesn't matter what it is, that he would be better able than me, better able than David, to separate a lot of possibilities out there. Possibly, but as, as I said, I noted, I think, at the beginning of the show, like, you know, that even, even pilots recognize that they're easy, easily fooled. Hence, you know, sort of their maxim about, uh, you know, you know, Venus, you know, don't assume it's Venus. You know, for, first, maybe assume it's, it's a plane and, and, and take action. Then pilots themselves know that they can be, they can be fooled by what's in their sky, right? So, so I don't know. It all depends exactly what, what, you're, what you're talking about, you know. We're talking specifically about pilots who report seeing structured metallic craft moving in highly anomalous ways at close proximity to their aircraft. So let's get very specific. That's what we're talking about, not random small lights in the sky. That's what they think they see, but maybe it's not, <laughs> maybe it's not what they see. <laughs> so, well, you know. but come on. I mean, look, this is where, I'm sorry I got to call you on it, Carl. This is where you're not being any different than the doe-eyed believers. You're engaging in fundamentalism. You are. I mean, basically what you're saying is, well, everybody can be wrong at all times about everything. Well, yeah. When we drive down the road in a car, you could be wrong about the acceleration of your vehicle. You could be wrong about the distance you are from another vehicle. You could be wrong about gauging the aggressiveness of another driver but if that were true you'd never get in the car i mean you know there is a working level of competence that has to go down for if you to get in the car and drive from a to b there's also it's, a basic level of competence just to get the license to allow you to go from a to b although obviously people don't care about that sometimes if a pilot was making these mistakes all the time in the cockpit, then that, that's, that'd be a bad thing. But I'm, ju I'm just saying that, you know, 
you know, guys up in the sky, you know, a thousand times, and you know, once in a while he's going to misidentify something, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. That's just that's just that's just being human. Okay, but how would you misidentify something that's clearly a structured craft that's at very close range? And this happens on the ground and in the air. You, well, you have to give me a specific example, but as I say... Actually, we know, did earlier. We gave you Gordon Cooper. Yeah, Gordon Cooper. a whole handful of them, but basically it all comes down to humans are not reliable. No human is reliable for anything. That's your blanket answer. You can't believe in people's acuity because, or their reliability, because everybody is fallible. Yeah, let me let me finish. And that's Go exactly ahead. what that's exactly why we have the scientific method, right? Is because we we know that that the human element has certain perceptual biases and can be fooled, and we want to completely eliminate that as a possible explanation. So this is why we have, you know, double blind, you know, medical trials, things like this. If we demand it of scientists, I don't see why we don't demand it of pilots, you know, or any witness to any phenomenon, you know, that I believe you saw something, but, you know, what you think you saw and what you really saw, they don't always match. But you're saying they never match. No, no, no. I said they don't always match. But you're saying they never match. No, I didn't say that at all. Right? Yes, you did. <laughs> yeah. See, this when is I, where... No, 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 no. No, no, excuse no. me. Let me let me rephrase it. Okay. You, you're saying that it's possible that they'll never match. It's possible they, they, they won't match, right? When I look at my speedometer, I'm pretty sure I'm looking at... Um, reading the number correctly, right? Yeah, but you don't know if the speedometer's right, right? I don't know if the speedometer's right, yeah. But, but again, I, I'm making the assumption that but the speedometer's right. I've got a GPS, too, in my car, so they, they frequently match. But Okay, they, but the point they, is, if you see 70 miles an hour, you figure yeah. it's got to be 70 plus or minus some given tolerance. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when I'm at a, at a four-way stop, right, you know, I look both ways. I look both ways again, and I keep looking both ways as I move through the intersection because because I know, you know, that even the second time I look, maybe I miss something. You know, the music's on. I'm thinking about my girlfriend, whatever. Yeah, you know what I mean. So so humans are fallible, and that sometimes you know you're up in the sky, and you know, ninety nine and a thousand times you see things pretty much for what they are. But once in a while, you see something you misperceive, and then you've, you've got an interesting story, right? Well, you're basically assuming facts, not in evidence, because you haven't actually investigated these cases to see what might have caused them. Well, you know, Carl, the problem is you've already shown your hand. I mean, see, the Internet has a very long memory. You've already shown your hand. Essentially, you've stated on the Internet that all of this is, and this is where your logic falls down, because okay. you've essentially stated all of this is woo. And the implication is that even asking questions, which is what we're doing, asking questions about unknown things is sort of, well, we have no instrumentation. We have no procedure in place for understanding these things. So because of that, it's woo. And so the problem there is that you're being a fundamentalist. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what you've done. I mean, see, the problem is that there's nothing scientific about your approach to this, your approach is already that you've drawn your conclusions. And if they don't fit that worldview, you sort of say, well, I don't know. I'm not even going to consider it. You flush it. We haven't made up our minds, but you have. <laughs> okay, Carl Mamer, thanks for joining us on the PowerCast. Hey, well, well, you know, thanks for having me on, guys. And, and uh, like I say, you know, you give me a lot of things to think about, and, and, and I'm happy to look up some of those cases. Cool. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. <laughs> 
Is your IRS tax problem ruining your life? Hi, I'm Ronnie Deutsch. Don't be another IRS victim, and please don't give up hope. Call me today and let's do something about it. If you have tax problems, call Ronnie Lynn Deutsch, a professional tax corporation, at 800-515-4541. That's 800-515-4541 for your free and confidential tax analysis. That's 800-515-4541 for your free tax guide. Call Ronnie Deutsch's law firm and speak with them today. Not available in New York. So we're back with Jim Delatoso today, and uh, we, we specifically asked Jim to come back and speak with us so soon. A couple of things that we want to talk with him about, one specifically relating to our uh, newest nemesis, Michael Sala. And uh, I'm not going to call him doctor because I, I want to see the proof of his degrees. But basically, Sala, uh, Jim, is, as you probably know, has written a thing online about having some discussions with you regarding this whole thing about Dick Cheney, and flying saucers and bodies. And uh, did you end up seeing this article online? I know that the article exists, but I have not read the article. All right. I didn't know what yeah, I said. No, he's actually saying, and I will quote, he says here, Dilatoso said Orion slash Hennessy showed both him and uh, Jem Cox photographs allegedly taking at S4. He saw photos of what appeared to be extraterrestrial vehicles, and extraterrestrial bodies and glass tubes. And his bold emphasis, he also saw a photo with Dick Cheney standing on a balcony allegedly inside the S-4 facility, viewing the area below with the flying saucers and bodies while O'Connor slash Hennessy was allegedly on duty. So the way that Salas makes it sound here is that, that you saw these photos. Now, what's the real deal? I did see those photos, and I spent a lot of time with the person who showed me the photos because he was staying at my place. I guess you might say I was hiding him out. I was giving him a place to stay in one of my guest houses. This is uh, in the early 90s. The questions about the photographs that I had seen are accurate. And when someone asked me about the photographs, when Michael Sala was asking me, I, I suppose he had heard from someone else what the photographs were of, and he perhaps had seen some recent video interviews where I was talking about, but let's get right to what I see, what did I say? I saw some photographs, and when I described the photographs in video to Rick and in the telephone interview with Michael Sala, I also qualified what I thought about the photographs that I saw. For example, I saw photographs of Dick Cheney, Bobby Inman, and some other officials standing on a rail looking down over a balcony. And what I said was, and it looked to me like those photographs could have been taken anywhere. Yes, there's all those people together. But the person who showed me the photographs and the circumstance that he was showing me the photographs was claiming that these were photographs that he took of these people inside a viewing area inside of S4. Now, at the time, 
I gave no credibility to the person who was showing me these photographs. So my BS alarm is going off, and I, I'm listening to what my house guest is telling me, but I don't really believe at that moment when he's showing me photographs of extraterrestrials in these tubes of fluid that that's what it is. And whenever I was asked about it in the last couple months of interviews, I say, yes, this is what I saw, but this is what I believed. So, yes, I saw photographs of alleged extraterrestrials in floating tubes about three, four feet in diameter, six, seven feet tall, and we're talking 20 years ago. I'm thinking, hmm, shots out of a science fiction movie. So, I guess for the uh, anxious, for the enthusiastic, Michael Sala, for example, would say, yeah, Jim Delatoso said he saw photographs of extraterrestrials in a water cylinder. Uh, I guess he is too excited about all of it to leave out my qualifier of looks to me like aliens in a uh, science fiction movie. At the time, this is at the time, later incidents made it more possible that the person who was staying at my ranch wasn't just a homeless person pretending to be a military guy who had infiltrated Wendell Stevens' world and bamboozled him so that Wendell then asked me to do him a favor and could this guy stay in my place. I mean, that's kind of what I thought. But I didn't want to say to Wendell, well, let me inspect this guy first before I let him stay at my house per your request. It's like, yeah, okay, he can stay here. I have lots of room. That's how that came about. But later incidents made it so that I thought that it was possible that some of the issues that Derek Hennessy had brought to my attention could have some, some factual basis to it. But it was all very confusing because the stories were really wild. But in the end, the the whole circumstance was wrought with uh, violent activities. Violent activities? People, violent activities. In what sense? Finding a, a chopped-off finger in a sandwich bag hanging on my gate, I consider to be a violent uh, episode. For <laughs> I went out, I leave the property, I have an inner gate and an outer gate. Derek Hennessy never left the property the whole time he was visiting except once. I brought him with me and a couple of other my house guests. We left, go to my brother's for Thanksgiving dinner. And with everybody in the car, I locked the inner gate and the outer gate. When we came back, I got out of the car to do the outer gate myself and then to the inner gate where I found a plastic bag and a note tacked up on the gate. Pretty sure it was somebody uh, that I knew <laughs> that knew how to get over the wall and come to the inner gate because sometimes I'd be there but have the outer gate locked and something that I knew had left me a message and I threw it in the seat of the car and went in put it in the kitchen I'll read it later Susan Gordon my girlfriend at the time got rather vocal with her screaming when she noticed uh, something that got her attention had me come in with a finger in the sandwich bag fresh you know cut off within a few hours and a note that said time to come home grasshopper or tweet TWEP which stands for um, terminate with extreme prejudice 
So I uh, knew it was probably not a note for me. Probably a note for um, Derek Hennessy uh, that I should get uh, Jim Cox to see. So took the note and the finger to Jim Cox. He lived on the other side of the house, guest house. And he went and talked to uh, Derek about it. Everyone called him Connor, by the way. To me, it was the the joke in and around John Connor from Terminator. Mm-hmm. And people called him Connor something else. But, you know, I knew his name. It was time for Connor and he to go. And I helped them get a car, a borrowed car, that they could then leave to go switch with another car. And um, that's it. They were gone. They were gone from my house. Phone calls over the next few days were that there was uh, people after them, same people that apparently had left the note, shooting at the car. They needed another car because the, uh, <laughs> the bullet holes in the white van was drawing a lot of attention at gas stations. Now, this is, this is getting pretty wild here. I, I would like to stop. I know. It and back up a little wild, bit. Okay. The happened. finger. The, let's start with the finger. Now, is this yes. something that maybe somebody took out of a morgue or something? Or is this somebody's finger that maybe was cut off, which gets to be very grisly? What do you think about that? The whole circumstances of what was going on at the time is the following. Wendell Stevens' grandson, Jim Cox, was doing some work with me, was staying regularly up at the ranch. Wendell called, and can you have another guy come and stay with Jim at your house for a couple weeks? I said, okay. This guy comes. Within a few days, this is the short version, I discover that he's supposedly a former guard at um, S4 that has gone AWOL because some of his other friends have mysteriously been killed. There were also guards at the facility, and that he needed a place to clear his head and decide whether he was going to go back. As more days unfolded, was he just didn't work at S4. He was one of the deeper-level guards guarding the comings and goings of people who were working in that deep facility on... Um, extraterrestrial reverse engineering projects and that he had photographs not just of that but photographs polaroid photographs of some of the other work that he did before he retired to s4 which was he was a uh, sharpshooter for the uh, u.s military frequently assigned to go to other countries and in urban areas and be a sharpshooter. And the Polaroid photographs were of dead people that he had sharp shot and extraterrestrial activities and that all of that in one in various coffee cans were his insurance that he wouldn't be killed. So I'm yeah, 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 okay, my BS alarm is going off again. Yeah, okay. You're you you can you can stay here for a while. You don't have to tell me wild stories. I thought he had conned Wendell into uh, letting him stay with him and just made up stories that would get feedback. Well, he stayed from in October till the end of the month in November. Every now and then I would see him. It wasn't every day. I gave him his own cabin to stay in. He'd walk the property at night because there were people looking for him. And uh, he was armed heavily tattooed with uh, military insignias, Marine Corps, the like. His clothing was military. There, The stories uh, 
were all laid bare one evening. Uh, Jim wanted to borrow my high eight video camera so that he could do a couple hours interview with them, and he did. And I sat in on some of that and listened to it and asked questions. When he talked about one of his group being a female, and that his it was his group's job to bring him back, and that that was who would be out there looking for him. Jump ahead to the night of the finger. His explanation of the finger was that it was the female member of his group who was there to bring him back. That as a message to him that they were serious. That it was time to him for to come back, or they were going to kill him, terminate with extreme prejudice, because they would take a member of their own group's finger and chop it off to let him know they were serious. Now, this person whose finger supposedly was removed. Was she ever yes. found? I never saw any of the other people. Okay, so you basically have saw any someone's word that this is what happened. No, I saw the finger. Okay, no, I'm, I, I, mean, I, I agree it. with that. Okay, that you saw the finger, the but I'm saying is the explanation is something that you're taking on this person's word that this is what happened. Correct. Okay, sure. Correct. Jim, before you continue, I've got one question for you. This guy, uh, this guy Connor. Um, besides the stories, and, you know, so you're saying he had some military garb, he had some military tattoos. Did he offer you any kind of hard evidence that he had been at S four? I mean, you know, he can say these things. No. Did he have anything you know, that, that kind of confirmed this? I understand. Yeah. That wasn't the nature of our relationship or dialogue. I was letting him stay at my place. I may have even told him, you don't have to prove anything to me. You can stay here. It's okay. Okay. I have to say, he didn't carry himself like a homeless person. He carried himself very precise, was very calculated in how he did everything. You're saying he also was armed? He was armed. How did you I'm feel about him? Hippie. I'm a pacifist. I, didn't, I don't know very much about identifying guns. All right. But it was uh, a collapsible automatic weapon and a sidearm, a pistol. How did you feel about knowing he was on your property heavily armed? I didn't feel threatened by him because he was there with Jim Cox. He did not have any outward signs of, of derangement that would make me concerned about things. And, yeah, I was concerned at the time. And, other people that were there at the ranch were uh, more concerned about them being there. I had a 90-acre ranch in Paradise Valley, Arizona. Uh, the rewards from my movie colorizing project, I was running little R&D projects on compression, and we were working with Zinc, and we were working on supercomputer memory managers and trying to develop a new business. So I had little cabins around the property where... Jim Cox and a half a dozen others came to work every day. I'm, I'm doing their, their things, and I was still in the entertainment business with Jeff Harris and Jordy Hormel and Village Recorder and Village Productions and Village Labs and all that. We, it was in the early stages of that, so we had other production things going on, coming and going. So I felt a kind of, uh, I'm trying to remember back, this is a long time ago, I, I, I kind of let it be that people could draw their own conclusions maybe that he was my security guard employed on the property. Mm, all right. uh, I, I think occasionally I let, would let people draw that conclusion, but Jim and Wendell and I talked about it quite a bit. There was no incident that happened. 
it was just when Jim was done and he was going to go back to Tucson, that Connor would go with him. That was it. Now, it was odd. Well, it, it definitely sounds odd. And he's showing you these pictures. Now, again, just to go back to Sala's statement on this article he wrote, when he says that you told him that you saw a photo of Dick Cheney standing on the balcony with flying saucers and bodies. I mean, you're, you're saying yeah. you did not see that. You saw Cheney on a balcony, but there were no UFOs or bodies in that picture, correct? Yes, that's correct. And Michael Sala was asking me questions based on video that he had seen, six-hour production done by uh, Rick, this guy, just to set it up, two interviews had been done years and years back with uh, Connor. One at Wendell's house, one at my place. And I never had those tapes, but I was there when the, the one was happening at my place. Right. And here it is, years and years and years later, Wendell has given one lecture about it. Rick wants to do a video about it. And I happened to be at Wendell's a couple uh, month ago shooting something else for a television show. And Wendell asked me if, uh, when we took a break, if uh, Rick, who I didn't know, could come over and interview me further about Connor. So Rick was asking me questions based on things Wendell and Jim had already told him, videos that he had recently seen of Connor, in fact, edited him into his program, and was asking me questions about things that he already had a question and an answer to. So Rick would ask me questions of, what photographs did Connor show you? And after I told him what he showed me, uh, he then said, well, did you see photographs of Dick Cheney? So I would say something like, yes, I saw photographs of Dick Cheney, and I also recognized Bobby Inman in the same photograph, and they were all up on a rail, up on a balcony. The photograph was taken from down below of them up on the rail looking down. And I would then say, not exactly what I said, word for word, but I said approximately, and I thought that it was a photograph that could have been taken anywhere. Right, right. So I was not proposing that I saw photographs of Dick Cheney at S4 looking at alien bodies. There's a 20-year gap, almost 20 years, since I looked at the photographs. And when he was showing me the photographs, Polaroids of dead guys, and other, mostly Polaroids, as I recall, uh, things, I didn't feel compelled to take up each picture and study it and look at it. It was kind of like, well, yeah, okay, so you say. Kind of briefly looked at him. The whole thing about a guy being a paid assassin, now being retired as a guard at uh, Area 51 and S4, which at that time, remember, was all brand new news to everyone. Right. In the early 90s, you know, Area 51 wasn't a household term. I just wanted to keep it at arm's length. Well, you know, you're talking about Polaroids, and um, I assume that everybody who listens to the show has an idea of what Polaroid photos are, but a couple of things we can say about Polaroid photos are taken with a Polaroid, you know, Instamatic camera, doesn't have a telephoto lens. Polaroid's a fairly bulky camera. So I guess my question about that, right, 
these Polaroids, were they... So, okay, this guy's an assassin. He's killing people. Presumably, you know, if you shoot somebody, do you stick around, take a Polaroid, or do you get the hell out of there? I guess it depends on whether it's a you know, quiet, private situation where maybe you're going to take a Polaroid to prove that the deed was done. Or if you're out in public, and if you're, let's say, using a sniper to shoot somebody, it'd be my guess that after you take the shot, you do the kill, you get out of there, right? So I'm wondering about the idea of, you know, is someone who's supposedly doing that going to stop and take, you know, pull out a bulky Polaroid camera, go over to where they've done the shot, the kill, take a shot, pull out the, the, the Polaroid, you know, wave it around the air for it to, uh, to develop, and then, like, right. go walk away. And so I guess my question about the Polaroids, were these photos from a medium distance? Were they, like, right up on top of the body? It would be uh, that you're standing over the body between your legs, taking a photograph straight down. Right. Most of the photographs were just like that from two to four feet away. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't know anybody, you know, who wants to look at stuff like that. I certainly wouldn't. Yeah. It, it just strikes me as odd that a guy would supposedly be a paid assassin doing high-level kills and uh, 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 stop to pull out the Polaroid camera to take the shot at close proximity. I mean, do you see where I'm getting at with this? I don't know if that makes any sense or not. What do you think? I did, didn't, and uh, that's why I just kind of left it alone. It was all seemed just a little too wacky for me. Jim, the problem we have here, of course, is we have somebody out there, Salah, and we are ignoring whether he has a real doctorate or not. And if he does somehow, he either paid for it from a degree mill or maybe we questioned the ethics of the institution that gave it to him, whatever. point is here, if he is now using that to validate his theory, and he's using you to validate his theories. Now, how does that strike you? Well, it's wrong to do that, and that's why I'm always trying to be so careful when someone asks me questions about something I was witness to or involved with, that I'm going to be paraphrased, but it's happened many, many, many times over the decades. So I won't say I'm thick-skinned to it, but I'm not surprised by it. And I don't know if it's malice on their part to weave a story or just enthusiasm to drop everything that's a qualifier and go for the meat and potatoes to have a sensational story. We're pray for the meat and potatoes. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Jim Delatoso setting the record straight here with regard to his contact with Michael Sala. In another instance, he was talking, Sala was writing articles about 
a particular person who <laughs> hung up on us on an episode of the Paracast because we exposed him as a thief and a liar. And we and other people presented to Sala evidence this person was a liar. So what was Sala's conclusion? That he actually must be an agent of some kind. Right. The After a day of deliberation, right, he figured out that Bill Nell was a disinformation agent. Now, you know, qualifier Bill here. Nell. Another uh, great We've set him off now, David. You see what's going to happen now is he, he's now going to be screaming the word Bill Nell to the top of his lungs. <laughs> Sorry. And you won't hurting. need any more telephones or Skype or a streaming system. You'll hear his <laughs> words around the world. Bill Nell. Sorry. Well, but see, here's the thing, Jim. I mean, you know, we're not paraphrasing you. Um, we're not distorting what you're saying. You're on here. We're going to run this. I think it's important that people do have a, a chance to express themselves and say what they mean, not what someone interprets them to mean, which is, I think, pretty clear here that this is what Salah has done. I mean, he took a conversation with you. Like you said, he basically exercised creative omissions and uh, uh, basically put words in your mouth. That's right. And I told him exactly the same thing that I said on the videotape. I wasn't clarifying for Michael something that was misunderstood in the video. I think it's on YouTube and a, and a few other sites, as is. But then again, uh, I recall he said in Michael's writing that he said uh, that the photographs were allegedly this and allegedly that. Is that no. allegedly by me or allegedly by him or all of that? For him to have said, Jim Dalatoso said he saw the photographs that had Bobby Inman and Dick Cheney in them, and he was suspicious that they were taken uh, at Area 51. He didn't use the word allegedly anywhere in the piece he wrote. Like yeah, I said, okay. uh, he bullfaced it. He also saw a photo with Dick Cheney standing on a balcony, allegedly inside the S-4 facility, viewing the area below with the flying saucers and bodies. It's not like, okay, so he uses the word allegedly in an Michael. interesting place there. <laughs> well, you know, Michael, uh, uh, oh, I'm just musing. I'm just, I'm just uh, reprimanding Michael Sala with a feather whip. Jeez, All right. it would All take right. a lot more than a feather whip. I think this person is incorrigible. But that's what you do, so I can use a feather whip, knowing that you all will bring the truth to bear about what was said and then what was intended. I think we're we're pretty clear on on this piece from Sala at this point. We can probably move on and let's get down to a real case okay. that you've looked into. Everybody knows about the Phoenix Lights episode. One of the conclusions we've we've come to on a personal level, I think Gina, I'll speak for Gina and myself, and I think a lot of people seem to feel this way as well, was that the Phoenix Lights consists of two separate sets of events. One earlier in the evening involving a, a really large, huge craft moving through the sky, a very dark, a large wing-shaped craft, a V-shaped craft, described as up to a mile long, with some lights underneath of it uh, blocking the stars. This thing was seen all throughout the state. Fife Simonton later said that he actually saw this thing. And that, that appears to be the real episode that night. But then later on, yes. there's that infamous video that we've all seen, we all know about, of the, the set of lights that's coming down from the sky, that a lot of people feel are not a UFO. Uh, a lot of people feel that there's a very high potential that these were flares that came down. So I know that when we had you on the show before, we talked a bit about this, but since yes. we've done that show, 
You've done some more research into this, so I'm hoping you can share that with our audience. Well, in any case, I get as much empirical data, data by the numbers, as I can and try to draw a conclusion out of that instead of going by just witness testimony or what we would like it to be and then going and getting data that will validate that position. I keep doing a number of investigations again and again using newer techniques. So we have this decision matrix. Well, if it's in front of the mountain, probably isn't flares from the mountain from a, a, a gunnery range 50 miles away on the other side of the mountain. If it's above the mountain, the lights, or drop behind the mountain, then the chances go up that could be flares. Right. We already have conflicting information about the flares situation. We have military bases for three months that say they have no knowledge of any airplanes dropping flares at that time. In fact, we have the public information officer at davis Monthan Air Force Base saying, yes, we had airplanes up, but they had landed at 8.30. This event happened, a lights event that was videotaped, happens at 10 o'clock. We have the Native American Indians that run the casino right at the mountain there, at the base of the mountain, say, yes, these lights were directly overhead, not 50 miles away down at the gunnery range. And then we have the Maryland National Guard saying, yes, we were up, we dropped flares, and we did not report to the public information officer in the registry desk because we were in from out of state. We have two different groups that have done simulations, one using uh, 3D Studio Max, the other using Maya. At the time, it was called Alias, by the way the program to simulate the position where the the witnesses shot video, the height of the mountains, and how bright the lights would have to be in order to show up on the camera 50 miles away. Then we have three years later, the National Guard dropped flares, same flares, on the year 2000 as a demonstration that these were flares. So everybody that had shot with their cameras was out in the same position and shot those demonstrations, but nobody could even see the lights. One of the key things, very useful, is go back to the exact location where witnesses shot video, shoot it in the daytime, shoot it in the nighttime, and superimpose the images. Mm-hmm. See what you get, because in the nighttime photographs, if it's in front of the mountains or behind the mountains, you can't see the mountains because they're too dark. The video facility where we do a lot of our investigations is called Spectrum Video in Phoenix, and Ken Liljegren and, and I have been working together for about 20 years in investigations and videotaping events and analysis, and point of story is one of his key staff people, uh, Antonio Chang, is a uh, Photoshop matrix filter creation expert and an Adobe After Effects expert. Two programs, David, that you would know quite a bit about. Mm-hmm. Well, well, let's just qualify Go this ahead. just for, for technical sake. A Photoshop yeah. matrix filter programmer would be somebody who is well-versed in the custom filter in Photoshop that almost nobody uses um, that yeah. is a convolution matrix. And basically... Right. is sort of the, the underlying foundation for a number of the built-in filters in Photoshop, like blur, blur more, sharpen, yeah. sharpen more, sharpen edges. It basically is a way to do an iterative process on a series of pixels where you uh, have this convolution kernel, 
you type in numbers, and, and, and actually, just as a little fun aside, one of the things I've been showing people for years, Jim, is a, a series of custom convolution kernels that a friend of mine did at ILM many years ago to move any selection, actually, in any direction, either a half or a third of a pixel, which supposedly in a raster-based environment oh, yeah. uh, it's supposed to be impossible, but it turns out is about a very subtle shift of brightness that gives you the visual equivalent of literally moving the contents of a selection either a half or a third of a pixel in any four directions. So when you're talking about custom matrix filter programming, you're specifically for people who are interested in this, you're talking about the custom filter, which is under Photoshop, Filter, and Other. And almost nobody who uses Photoshop uses that filter because it requires some mathematical understanding of how custom convolution kernels and matrices work. So yes. just to fill in the, the gap so people have an understanding, no problem. Yes. Please continue. Well, <laughs> I've been using that filter myself for over 10 years. I think it's quite useful. In fact, I've lectured a few times, a couple of them are videotaped and out there on the web, of how to use specifically that filter in Photoshop to analyze UFO photos. Because of that common ground that Antonio Chang and I have and my admiration for his diligence in using uh, Adobe After Effects and Photoshop, after our discussions, I decided to put it in Ken Liljegren and Antonio Chang's hands and say, well, let's do this again. Channel 10, Fox, did the test in 1997, showed the lights in front of the mountain and below the ridgeline. Discovery Channel had some people do it for a TV special called The Anatomy of an Investigation on the Phoenix Lights, and that was uh, at the ridgeline, exactly at the ridgeline, and as they went out, it was dropping below the ridgeline. And, of course, the world-famous Jim Delatoso analysis in 1997, showing the lights below the ridgeline and in front of the mountain. Remember, in 1997, we had the, the ability to grab real-time video and store it in a computer and do things and play it back did not exist. It was one frame at a time. Our graphics frame buffer was a TRW RAM cube, one gigabyte of RAM, and I think we paid $30,000 for one gig of RAM in a box that looked like a looked like a lawnmower. But we, we used our appropriate software, and we did what we did and did the analysis. So throwing all that under the bus, it would start all over as if nothing existed. So Scott Davis from Channel 3, Larry Lowe from the UFO Examiner, and also works at Smithsonian Airspace Museum, Antonio Chang, Ken Liltergren, and I, Slept our stuff up to uh, Mike Kristen's house. Mike, the uh, shooter of the most well-known Phoenix Lights video, and we had the prior video that he had shot and daytime shots shot with his camera in the frame store, and uh, we set up a modern equivalent, the optical equivalent of Mike's camera from back then, in the exact same spot, shot in the daytime, shot at twilight, shot at night, used a frame store, superimposed it, matched the ridge lines, did edge detection on uh, the frame so that we were matching ridge lines, used the image stabilization feature in After Effects so that we had the light from the earlier 10 years ago video 
uh, all in one position relative to the ridge line, superimposed all of those together live on the spot and illustrated that the lights, son of a gun, if they aren't exactly right where the ridge line is. They're not above, they're not below the ridge line, they're exactly right at the ridge line. So what that appears to illustrate is that the lights are dropped at a distance up in the air. And as the lights drop, when they are appearing to go out, happens to be at exactly the moment when they're, quote, dropping below the ridge line. So Antonio, who is a degree from Arizona State University in computer science, and image processing and video production, I believe was objective and diligent in the way that he set it up. Larry Lowe and I talked about it quite a bit the couple days before the test and the hour before the test of, no, let's not meddle. Let's participate by observing and let Antonio do it without interference or uh, trim tabbing. And um, I think it was correct, and I think it demonstrates that with um, high-quality equipment, appropriate frame grab, where you're not concerned about gen locking in order to get a stable grab, have them all match, for those of you technically interested. But to be able to match the frames up and to show not that it's X distance behind the mountain or X distance in front of the mountain, but to show that wherever the lights are, they're behind the mountain because, by deductive reasoning, the lights appear to go out at the moment that they are dropping, and it's ever so subtle a drop. We're talking about 1% of frame over a two-and-a-half minute. But it's enough, it's just enough for it to go out as it goes behind the ridgeline. Right. Thus, so implying that mm -hmm. it is most likely directly in the line, in the direction of where the flares, a, a Goldwater field is, that they um, are moving ever so into slightly independently of each other, but at a great distance away, we would expect that. So to my satisfaction, this has been an improvement on a test process because of using improved hardware and improved software from 10 years ago done in a very precise way with uh, good witnesses to the testing and uh, the lights, what we can say for absolutely sure is that the lights are not in front of the mountains. Right. Thus, increasing the probability that they could be flares. And, and that's the end of my speech. I hope I okay. made a long story interesting. No, that's the exact appropriate amount of information, Jim. And, and, and again, we want to emphasize, it's very important to emphasize that contrary to the way the mainstream media portrays the events that night, there definitely appears to have been two separate episodes. And this in no yeah, way, right. this in no way impacts what happened earlier in the evening, where it, it is clear to those, I think, looking into this, that there was a, a highly anomalous craft scene moving silently yes. 
in the sky, blocking out stars that uh, people like Mike Fortson, you know, direct witnesses, describe this thing as being so immense as to boggle the mind. All right. Well, you know, my my well, questions have been answered, Jim. Thank you. Okay. Thank you <laughs> Before we for, let you uh, disappear into the ether, if you have a final thing to say or tell uh, our okay. listeners where to find you if they want to get a hold of you. Yes, I use email. I have nothing to sell, so I don't have a website that sells anything. But you can email me on all topics under the sign at toso, T-O-S-O, at cox, C-O-X, dot net. Right. Keep on doing what you're doing. I love going to the Paracast. Take care, Jim. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.